All right, good morning, church. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Cameron, and I'm an intern here at the New River Valley Church. And before we get started, please bow your heads and learn and join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful morning that we get to gather together as a family, as a community, with you at the center, Father. Thank you for, yeah, just the people in this room, people who who dearly want to know you, dearly want to know Jesus, know just how to live a life that's worthy of you, Father. Father, I pray for this service and this time with you. I pray that whatever message we hear today, that we could take it out beyond these walls and apply it to our lives. Father, just thank you for this opportunity. It's such an honor to be up here and to speak in front of my brothers and sisters. Father, I pray all of this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So as a church, we've been going through the parables of Luke. And if you have a Bible today, please turn to Luke 17. Give me a thumbs up once you guys are there. Starting in verse one, it says, and he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into a sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey. Will any one of you who has a, has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, Come at, come at once and recline at the table. Will he rather not say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is the word of the Lord. And what we see here in this passage is Jesus is addressing his disciples. He explains to them that he explains to them as his followers that it is their duty and responsibility toward each other to serve and serve and to serve and do what God has called them to do. And for those of you who know me, I have two younger sisters who are twins. And grow, and growing up, they were always the quiet, shy and just innocent ones. And I was the one who was always loud, super excited, and always getting in some type of trouble. <laughs> but as their older brother, they were easily influenced by me, and they were quick to follow me into whatever I decided to get into that day. And so one day I decided, while my dad was taking a nap, I was gonna go into the fridge and drink some of his Moscato, because at the time I just turned 11 and I thought I was a man. <laughs> But like most people, but like most people, I couldn't drink alone. I needed a drinking buddy. 
So I asked, so I asked my eight-year-old sisters to come drink with me, and I convinced them that they were also adults too, and that it was time for them to have their first drink. And literally, as soon as we all had our first sip of wine, my dad wakes up and sees me with a bottle of wine in my hand. So you can imagine what time it was. But before my dad decided that it was he was gonna whoop me. I tried to explain to him that it wasn't just me who drank wine. It was also my sisters who drank it. But he wasn't hearing any of that. He explained to me, because I was the older brother, it was up to me to lead by example, and I didn't. I let my sisters sisters into trouble, and because of that, I was the only one that was punished that day. And here in the text, we see Jesus says something similar to his disciples. He tells them, that temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one whom they come. He tells them that it is better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea that he should cause one of his little ones to sin. And up until this point, Jesus has been teaching or been preaching to all types of people. He's been preaching to tax collectors, sinners, and the Pharisees. But in this passage, he's directly addressing his, his apostles and his followers. He tells, he, tells them to be, uh, he tells them to avoid becoming a stumbling block to others, causing them to sin. For it is better to die than cause to the little ones to sin. And here we see the little ones are other believers. Here Jesus purposely goes into vivid detail and gives this imagery of a millstone being hung around, hung around a person's neck and them being cast away and thrown into the sea. Jesus tells them it is better to have one hanging from your neck and to be thrown in the sea than to cause someone to sin. And a millstone is literally just a giant stone weighing hundreds of pounds that is used to grain and grind um, grain. And for the disciples, it would have been a shock to hear this. This would have been an extremely painful and horrible way to die. But this only emphasized and highlighted the importance of Jesus' call not to cause others to stumble or sin. This would have immediately put those hearing this on notice. Jesus tells us that stumbling blocks and temptations will come. He is not blind or ignorant to the fact that we live in a broken world surrounded by sin. We live in a culture full of stumbling blocks that will alienate us from our alliance and our allegiance to Christ and lead us back to sin. Just like the disciples then, we live in a world where we are constantly, constantly shocked and attacked by our Christian beliefs, where criminals regularly lead others headlong into sin, where we celebrate idols of our culture that lead many away from the truth and life of Jesus. Jesus warns us to not become one of those stumbling blocks. Jesus doesn't say woe on the offender, but he says woe to the one whom the offense comes. And for me, this message is both terrifying, but also convicting. I immediately began to reflect and think about all the ways I've caused others to stumble or or other ways I've led others astray. I think about my life before becoming a follower of Jesus and all the ways I brought others into my sin and encouraged them to pull away from God by encouraging them to sin. I think of the times I encouraged drunkenness, drug abuse, and sexual immorality. 
I think about the times I've encouraged my twin sisters to indulge in worldly things. And because of that, it seems like they're so far away from knowing who God is or even wanting to know who God is. I think about the times, even as a disciple, as a disciple and a follower of Jesus, where I led my brothers and sisters astray. I think about how it not only hurts me, but it also hurts them and pulls them further away from the loving arms of the father. I think about the future and when I have kids of my own and if I'm going to cause them to stumble, stumble. For you guys, how do you feel when you think of the ways you've caused others to stumble? How do we cause others to stumble today? And how might we push others closer to God instead of further away from him? Jesus calls us, Jesus calls us not to cause others to sin, but he also calls us to pick up each other when we fall. So how do we do this? Jesus gives two answers to this question. The first answer is to rebuke, and the second answer is to forgive. And to rebuke just means to reprimand or strongly warn or restrain. And if you're anything like me, when you hear the word rebuke, I immediately tense up and feel uncomfortable. I hate having hard conversations and having to call out friends and family when I see something they're doing is not godly or is contrary to scripture. And I'm sure I'm not the only one in this room that feels that way. But when we're called to rebuke our brothers and sisters, sure we need to be serious and frank, but we also are called to be gentle and loving in our rebuke. When we rebuke, it reminds our brothers and sisters the truth and hope of scripture. It helps them to return to the path of righteousness and helps them to see and remember God and his love that follows. But by saying nothing, we live in comfortable, culpable silence. And there's this there's a quote from this book I've been reading in my quiet time called Love Like This. It says truth without love is ugly, but love without truth is spineless. And here we see Jesus gives us no option in this matter. He tells us that we must rebuke because he knows rebuking leads to repentance. And if they repent, Jesus' second answer for us is to move from rebuking to forgiveness. And verse three through four, it says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must you must forgive him. And we see that Jesus attaches the duty of rebuking with the responsibility to forgiveness. And for most of us, when a person sins against you enough times, it becomes increasingly personal. But regardless of the personal nature of the offense and the repetition of the offense, Jesus tells us if they repent, we must forgive. This type of forgiveness is boundless and limitless. And to do this is to become more like God, forgiving in this way is an act of obedience and gratefulness to God. It acknowledges the sacrifice God made through his son Jesus, who died to restore relationship between God and man. C.S. Lewis says, to be Christian means to forgive the inexcusable, because God had forgiven the inexcusable in you. God always stands against sin and rebukes, and yet he also delights to forgive repentant sinners. This forgiveness is limitless. So for you guys, how many times has God forgiven you? Mm 
Does he not? Does this call to forgiveness seem difficult to you? And if the answer today is yes, then you are not alone in that feeling. For the disciple, for the disciples, they knew and recognized this call to forgive in this way seemed difficult and borderline impossible. So how do we love and forgive others this way? How do we love and forgive others the way Jesus calls us? And the answer to that is faith. Through faith. The disciples asked Jesus in verse 5 to increase their faith. Because they knew and recognized that great faith in God is needed for this type of boundless and limitless forgiveness. Mark 11, starting in verse 22 says, And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that the Father also who is in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. And the disciples understood that we only receive God's power only through faith for that type of forgiveness that we're called to give. Jesus, Jesus clearly likes the request for them to increase his faith. And he replies by saying in verse 6, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey. And if you were one of the disciples hearing this, you would have been shocked and amazed by Jesus saying this. Because the roots of a mulberry tree were thought to be really strong. So strong, in fact, that it was thought that they could stay rooted for 600 years. And Jesus tells them that faith the size of a mustard seed, which is very, very small, is strong enough to uproot this mighty tree. The deep roots of this tree could be seen as unforgiveness and bitterness that is deeply rooted within us. It may be like a mulberry tree that sends down deep, strong roots, but through faith the size of a mustard seed, Jesus can rip those roots of bitterness and unforgiveness clean out. After hearing, after hearing Jesus give all these immense requirements to not cause others to stumble, to rebuke those who sin, to extend unlimited forgiveness, to exercise immense faith, most of us might be expecting or asking to receive some type of reward or divine favor. In a culture where we work 40 hours a week and have labor unions and a time and a half in overtime, the role in this parable might seem not only distant, but unfair. After a long day in the fields, surely this servant has earned appreciation and comfort and reward for his work. As we look at this passage, the servant does not receive any praise for what he has done. Jesus tells us that it was this servant's duty and responsibility to do all these things. So why should he expect or receive a reward for what is required of him? And for context, a servant during this time would find security in their relationship with their master. A good master would provide the servant with a sense of worth and meaning that is deeply felt on the part of the servant who serves a great man. The master would provide for the servant's the, the master will provide for the servant's needs, but also provide will provide worth, meaning, security, and relationship with the servant. And in turn, the servant will offer loyalty, obedience, and hard work. 
So it wouldn't be expected for the servant to receive special, special treatment for the work he's done. But for many of us, we treat, our, we treat our servant-master relationship with God much differently. We feel like God owes us and is indebted to us because of the work we've done. We could demand God to give us what we deserve and what we're owed. In church, thankfully, God does not answer that prayer and that demand because what we deserve truly is death. Romans 6 tells us, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Family, God chooses to reward and praise us, not because of how hard we worked or how diligent we work or the quality of our work, but because that is what is expected. He gives us these gifts and rewards because he loves us and he just and he loves showering us with gifts. Amen. God's favor isn't earned, it's gifted. Jesus understood that salvation was a gift. His sacrifice, his life, not because we are worthy and earned it, but because we are cherished, cared for, and deeply loved by the Father. Family, we serve because of love, grace, and the sacrifice given to us by God. We serve an amazing God, and in Him we receive meaning, worth, security, and relationship. Let us not go another day viewing God's love and favor as something we can earn. Let us not, family, let us, let us instead choose to view God's love and favor as an amazing undeserved gift that he's provided with us with so much peace and comfort. So today I'm going to leave you with two practicals. The first practical is take time in your family groups and D groups or just get time with someone and share for you what makes it hard for you to forgive others. And then in your family groups, pray and ask God to show you how to increase your faith. And watch how he transforms and touches your lives. This calling to love, rebuke, and forgiveness is a high calling. But it's also a beautiful gift given to us by God. No one knows this better than Jesus. He walked this earth as a man, flesh and bone, and showed, showed us what it looks like to rebuke and love those around us. Even more than that, he showed us and gave us this beautiful gift of forgiveness. He suffered many things to the point of death for the forgiveness of our sins. So before we leave today, we're going to take communion as a family and as a community. So, so as we take the bread, which is his body, that was broken for us, and the juice, which is his blood, let us reflect and remember the amazing healing and peace that his love and forgiveness has given us. And I'm going to pray for communion. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you for his life and showing us what it means to live a life truly honor, on, worthy and honoring to you. Thank you for his death that sets us free from death and his resurrection that sets us free from sin. Father, I pray as we take the bread, which is his body that was broken for us, and his juice, which is his blood that spilled for us, that we can remember the beautiful gift of forgiveness and love that he offers all of us. Father, I pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.